Hey, this is Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 69 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. On today's episode, hear interviews with Sally Garner from University of Oregon, Patricia McMillan from Ontario Tech University, and John Sauter from Niagara University. And Ryan Sheckle from Texas Tech University is back as guest host. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 69. In just a week, many of us will be at the annual Nakata Conference in Portland, Oregon. How exciting. I'll be there. So if you see me, stop by, say hi. Let's chat about all things advising and higher ed. One of the components of a conference is usually the service project. I think the service project co-chairs have found an amazing organization in Portland to partner with at the annual conference. So let's take a little bit of time and hear all about it. All right, guess who's back with us today? And that is Sally Garner from University of Oregon and Patricia McMillan from Ontario Tech University. Last time Sally and Patricia were on was back in April for episode 56 of the podcast titled Advising with a Caring Curiosity. Well, the dynamic duo are working together as the service project co-chairs of the 2022 Nakata Annual Conference in Portland. They've been doing some amazing work, so I'm interested to hear all about it. Sally and Patricia, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Matt. Hi, Matt. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, welcome back. And let's dive into the questions. Why are conference service projects important? How, wh- why do you think that is? That's a good question, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for many ways. I mean, you're getting together a bunch of, of advisors. Advisors naturally are givers uh, and caretakers. Uh, so having a service project where we can we can all work together and give back to the community that we're essentially taking over for, you know, five days uh, is is always an important thing. And just to, to help out each city that we're leaving an impact on, we'd like to uh, leave something behind. And I think it's an important part of Nakata's legacy, too. And Nakata's uh, dedication to being um, a great partner with the cities that host our conferences, either regional or annual conferences, and I'm sure at the international level as well. So this is a wonderful way to partner with a local organization and give back. Yeah, and then going with that, what is which organization have you partnered with? I feel like we should have a sound effect of a drum roll. Yes. <laughs> uh, I will. I. I wrote some stuff down to make sure I did not forget our amazing organization. So we are working this year with Self Enhancement Inc. They are a Portland-based institution. Uh, and the mission of this organization, they state that they are dedicated to guiding underserved youth to realize their full potential. So they work with schools, with families, partner community organizations, and provide support and opportunities for students to achieve um, personal and academic success. So they believe that helping the youth realize the potential through opportunities uh, will enhance not only the quality of life for that individual, but the quality of the community life um, by impacting, you know, who's going out into the community and becoming, you know, adults and citizens of the world. So, um that's just a little bit of who they are. Uh, they're 40 years old. They started in 1981, so a little over 40, um, and are purely a, a Portland-based institution. Sally, do you want to add to that? <laughs> yeah, this organization really stood out to us because I think it kind of speaks to the work that we do with students, too. We want to see students uh, as a whole person. We help students as a whole person. Holistic advising has been a trademark of our profession for a long time. And this organization is about seeing and helping the whole individual uh, from, the, from the time that they are younger all the way up through you know high school and beyond, but not just them, their families as well, right? Because all of what they do and all of what they can accomplish, they need their support system around them. So when their support system is successful, they are successful as well. Yeah, and there's also a promotional video that that was made, and I think uh, we need to thank Joe for that as well. Um, and then we'll include a link uh, for that video um, in our show notes too. Uh, so I say check it out. A very short video, but yeah, you get kind of the full spread in terms of like what uh, SEI is and really just how they're helping the the community. And yeah, go ahead, Patricia. I was just going to say in that video, the snippet that we chose to include in that video um, is one of my favorites because it's like if you know. 
If they need school supplies, they are there. If they need somebody to cheer them on at a sporting event, uh, Self-Enhancement Inc. shows up. Um, they'll help with groceries. They help with scholarships. So they're just, as Sally said, they're helping the whole the whole student, not just, you know, throwing a scholarship at somebody at the end of high school. Um, they're helping them throughout their, throughout their lives with everything that they need to become that whole, whole person moving forward. Uh, absolutely. And I guess tied to that would be, what is the, the goal, uh, the donation goal? And, you know, so if someone's like, hey, do you want to donate? And, you know, here's $5. A lot of times people want to know, where's that money going? $5 will help. Absolutely. I will take your $5. Our donation goal for our organization is to raise $5,000 for SEIR. And we can do that, Nakata folks. We can totally do that. Every $5 will help. Any amount will help, really. Uh, we have two ways to donate. We will have a link in our in our donation video that you can access a website if you'd like to donate electronically. But at the conference, we will also be some folks will be walking around with donation buckets and you can throw some cash in there. Throw in 50 cents, throw in a dollar, throw in five dollars, throw in the change you got from Starbucks. Um, if you are traveling internationally and you are about to leave the country and you don't want to take that pesky American change with you, throw it in the bucket. Uh, we will You're getting take- all my pennies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, we will take everything that you donate. We want to raise $5,000 and more for this organization, but $5,000 is our goal and it can be any dollar amount you wish. Selfenhancement.org slash Nakata is the website, but we will, it'll be out there in many, many places. Um, so we will make sure that everybody who wants to donate online can, but we will be there during the conference for those of you with, with your cash donations, but please anybody, you do not have to even be going to Portland virtually or in person uh, to donate anybody, anybody listening, anybody who has a, uh, you know, a couple bucks they're willing to share. We are happy to, to take that donation from you. Yes. And yeah, it's going to a very, very great cause. And is there a deadline that someone can, like, I would imagine those attending the conference in person, the deadline if they want to give their cash is going to be like, by the end of the conference, but someone who wants to donate online, uh, whether they're attending the conference or not, um, is there a deadline that you have in place? We'd like to keep the campaign through SCI's uh, online donation link uh, active through the end of October, mm-hmm. just to catch folks um, in case they intended to donate, didn't get a chance to while they were at the conference and got back home and, you know, uh, deci- uh, remembered that they wanted to do that. So a few days past the conference, absolutely, you still have the opportunity to donate. So the month of October, let's, let's raise some funds. Yes, let's make it happen. And what's been your experience of... Uh, being on the conference committee as the service project co-chairs. Any excuse to work with Sally Garner, I take. Uh, so that has been fantastic. But it's also, it's, I mean, of course, it's rewarding to raise money for a worthy organization. Um, when we get the updates, I mean, they're just trickling in so far, but the updates from from self-enhancement about how much has been donated so far, you're like, yay, like it's it's an exciting we're doing it. It's happening. So um, to see it finally live and, and the donation starting to happen, um, it's really, it's definitely, I would, I would call it rewarding. I mean, I'm not saying all of the positions on the service on the uh, steering committee aren't rewarding, but this one, you get a little extra. You're helping. So I like it. <laughs> well, any chance I get to work with Patricia, I'm going to sign up for that as well. <laughs> but I think what particularly drew me to Service Project as the committee that uh, appealed to me was that opportunity to work with an organization outside of Nakata. Um, you know, I've had a lot of wonderful Nakata relationships and um, the ability to work with folks and collaborate with folks within the organization. But being part of the Service Project subcommittee has allowed us to kind of uh, work on behalf of Nakata, but impacting another organization that has brought another level of uh, Nakata experience for me. So I've really appreciated that as well. Well, I appreciate you both being on the podcast to share about the Service Project, the wonderful organization that you've partnered with. Um, definitely hope that you reach your goal and actually exceed that goal. Uh, but it's good to know that it'll be open through the end of October for anyone to donate. But Sally, Patricia, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Great. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you, Matt. We hope to see lots of people with some loose change in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody. <laughs> 
thanks, Sally and Patricia, for jumping back on the podcast to talk about your service project with SCI. If you'd like to donate, the link is in our show notes. Every penny counts. Every dollar helps. I hope you both reach your goal. Now on to our next interview. For this interview, we have a guest host uh, for this episode, and that is Ryan Sheckle from Texas Tech University. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, and so I turn it over to you to introduce a first-time guest and a huge supporter of the podcast. So take it away. Great. Uh, you know, it's always a joy uh, to connect with community, um, and uh, for one of the uh, one of the things that I get to do as guest host is talk to people uh, that I like hanging out with too. Um, and so I'm excited to introduce Dr. John Sauter. John is assistant dean for academic affairs at Niagara University's College of Arts and Sciences. He served as an AmeriCorps uh, VISTA at the University of Maine, Toronto, um, received a master's degree in higher education and student affairs from the University of Vermont, and earned a doctorate in higher education administration from the University of Buffalo, researching faculty, multicultural competence, and practices. John is a cluster representative in Nakata's Advising Communities Division, a mentor for the Emerging Leaders Program, and a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Education Advisory Board. He previously contributed a case study to the second edition of Multicultural Competence in Student Affairs, Advancing Social Justice and Inclusion. He also formerly served as the Nakata Technology and Advising Community Chair, presents regularly, and is active in the Western New York Advising, Nakata Social Justice Coffee Chat, Academic Advising Twitter Chat, and Urban Sketching Communities. Dr. Sauter teaches urban sketching and sociology of higher education at Niagara University and social media and technology for the Buffalo State Higher Education Administration Program. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so uh, there will be some people out there uh, who will be like, did they just decide to hang out on the podcast together? Um, we've known each other for a long time, but preparing for this podcast, it got me thinking about the first time we met and where that happened. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you remember it the same way I do. Is, was it a tweet up at an annual conference? I, I think it was. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, was it in Minnesota? That sounds right. Uh, I think that was about the era in my uh, professional journey uh, when I was like, I've been to annual conferences. Um, I've gone to concurrent sessions. I've done pre-conference sessions. Um, but I don't know that I did a lot more than that. Um, it may not sound uh, like I'm being honest here, but when I'm in really big groups, I tend to be a little bit more of a wallflower and observer. Um, I think one of the things we have in common is we tend to be more reflective and processors. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so it, I made a deliberate effort to say, I want to connect with people. Um, and I think it was one of those uh, tweet ups uh, we connected a little bit on social media through the Twitter chat. Um, but that was a step that seems so strange now to say was like a big step for me to go to a social activity at a conference and meet people that I only kind of might have known um, virtually or otherwise. Now in 2022, um, it just seems like it should have something, something I should have been doing a long time ago. So I'm so glad I did it. Um, and, and I'm glad that uh, you're here on the podcast today. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what is a bit of a traditional question for the podcast, um, and that's your journey to higher education. Uh, your role uh, at your institution is really interesting, um, but I'm curious how you got there. How did you go from the student that you were uh, to the advising administrator that you are? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast. Yeah, so I um, was involved in a lot of, you know, it's kind of student affairs type things at my institution at Colby College. Um, so I was engaged in 
um, sort of programming on a weekly basis. I was engaged with the student affairs division, um, and I was engaged with um, you know sort of some of the people in in those roles. And so I was like trying to decide what I wanted to do, and that's how I got into some PhD programs for history. Sort of decided that probably wasn't exactly where I wanted to go. And I'm like, well, what can I do? I, I really enjoy hosting events and I really enjoy, you know, student affairs type stuff, but I had no experience in like event planning. So I sort of switched over and, and the AmeriCorps opportunity came up. So I was working with service learning and America Reads literacy programs at the UMaine Orno. Um, and that gave me an opportunity also to work with a specialist to the president. Um, so part of my housing, I was working with them doing um, sort of minoritized student recruitment and a couple other things with there that, that really sort of struck a chord with me. Um, and so we did trainings as part of AmeriCorps. And one of the trainings was at the University of Vermont, where we got to sit down with then President Judith Romali um, and sort of talk through like her perspectives on service and how it interacted with the university. Um, and through that conversation, I discovered that they had a program in student affairs. Um, and having been born in Burlington and grown up in Vermont, I was excited to sort of take that opportunity. So when I went there, I interviewed for an assistantship and I got an assistantship with the College of Education, Social Service or, and Social Services um, sort of services area. So I was doing sort of advising services type work there. Um, and so as I got out, I really wanted to keep working with faculty. I really wanted to keep working and advising. So it took a little while to sort of find the right job, but I, you know, kind of brought me to Niagara University, um, thanks to a little clipping that my, my spouse cut out of the uh, <laughs> newspaper over here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there are times when people who might be listening to this podcast or may have been in advising for a little bit um, less time than the two of us. Um, they may hear about something at the dean's level or assistant dean level or whatever for academic advising and find that particularly fascinating. Could you talk a little bit more about the work that you do, um, where you are, and and I guess your experience with advising professionally, like what you've who you've worked with and how you've worked with and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to sort of summarize. I've been here 21 years, um, which is unusual at many places. I met a lot of people bounce around to different different locations. I've sort of grown in my role and my role's grown with me. Um, so a lot of it is relationships at, with faculty, with students, and, and sort of developing um, trust um, to be able to address issues. Um, so in the beginning, you know, it was very hands-on, like doing every type of thing. And throughout my time in that position, it's so, slowly grown more into like, you know, thinking about systems and processes and how do we like kind of merge everything together so that instead of, you know, being very reactive and dealing with whatever comes our way, um, you know, we can kind of start putting systems in place to try to avoid getting to that part. So. Um, much of what I do is sort of the student services side of advising. Um, so I work with uh, part, well, used to be part-time, now full-time advisor here. Um, I work with over 90 faculty advisors. Um, I work with, well, it's sort of range right now. It's, you know, just under a thousand, but um, in the past, it's been most of my time here, it's been about 1400 students. Um, so what I do is sort of troubleshoot advising for the students. Um, I'm the one where, you know, if a faculty member doesn't quite know how to answer a thing, they come talk to me. Um, and that used to be, you know, primarily around advising issues and other things. But now that I've been here for a while, I'm more integrated with the, the, the university. A lot of those are curricular issues or things with the new gen ed or with, you know, sort of how do we integrate these systems into to place. Um, so I really have, you know, working at a small school, you have a lot of hats and I have a lot of hands in a lot of different things and um, sort of still trying to balance all those things and make sure that that in the end we're trying to, you know, help the students to be able to make the best decisions possible based on whatever circumstances they're in at the moment, but also, you know, kind of think ahead and, and try to 
identify things before they become issues. Yeah. I, um, for context, for our listeners, I've been at my institution for 20 years going on 21. Um, and so there are, there are times, um, when in the middle of a conversation, a student issue, a systemic issue or a transitional period or whatever, when I sometimes feel strange, um, recognizing that the folks who I'm having these conversations with, um, haven't either been a part of the context I've been a part of, or for as long as I've been a part of it. Um, and finding a balance between the benefit of that longevity, but also the benefit of new perspectives. And so I'm kind of curious, just, uh, even, even in the moment, um, what you might think are the, the pros and cons of having been at an institution for 20 plus years. Well, I think like if you have a computer system malfunction, you can always bring out the 3.5 floppy disks and, you know, say, Hey, we can start over here for a minute. That's right. Um, but it, it, in general, um, I think what it does is it brings perspective. Um, so sometimes decisions are made based on, you know, whatever the popular, you know, trending issue is in, in context. And sometimes you have to kind of balance that with, um, sort of institutional context and really kind of personalize it with, with the institution. And so I always try, like one of the things that I love about my job, particularly the ability to work in many different ways is that I get to innovate and, and kind of um, sort of create and, and sort of steer some of the stuff that, that goes forward. Um, and what what's been nice is that over the time, the students have helped challenge me in ways that have helped keep me relevant um, to kind of what their needs are, where they're at. Um, so, you know, there are things that challenge institutions. There are things that, you know, the, you know, 2015 um, was a big year for, you know, sort of challenges around the, the nation. Um, and there's lots of things that are there that happen on your campuses that you can have more perspective with if you can kind of judge where you've been and where you're going so that you can help not only you know help the students develop their own skills but you can help connect them to the fabric of the institution so you can help help them by pointing out which doors might be the best doors to to go to 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 accomplish what they're looking for you can you know tell them the history of of how this is developed and you know, sort of explore, you know, where have we been? Where do we want to go? You can connect them to alumni that have been in their shoes in the past. Um, and so you can have these conversations and, and get um, students talking about different social issues and other types of things. Um, and you can make connections to the stories of, of, of the people at your institution. Um, so, I mean, I've been very lucky with lots of faculty that have you know, over many years, I've developed very strong relationships with. So, you know, I know that, you know, they know that I'm there to support them. And I know that I can work with them to, you know, sort of sit down and solve problems that, you know, at another institution might run into siloing issues or other things. I can sort of break that down by having worked there for so long. I know everybody can just pick up the phone and sort of go from there. So that's been nice. Yeah. You know, I, um, I've tried to find ways to make the experience and, and the time that I've spent at a single institution valuable, um, you know, to whatever the context or situation may be. Um, but I know that uh, one of the things that academic advisors are really good at is identifying um, where issues or problems or uh, conflicts may arise and, uh, and if nothing else, pointing them out. Um, and then perhaps that longevity gives you a chance um, to offer some perspectives that might lead to solutions. And uh, you mentioned, um, uh, of course, 2015 almost seems to have been, you know, superseded by the pandemic in 2020. And it can be tough to roll with all the social change and the influences um, and the disruptions uh, for higher education. But I'm curious, um, one of the themes that's evident uh, in, in your work is diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, social justice. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how that and how and why that became important to you? Did it start with your AmeriCorps work or, or is it something that's always been a part of your perspective on the world? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Um, I don't think that I had the awareness early on in, in my life to really fully understand everything. Um, so I lucked out that I grew up in a family that, you know, val- valued helping others and kind of doing the right thing. My grandparents were huge, you know, part of that. Um, but I grew up in a very rural New England town. Uh, there wasn't a lot of diversity. There wasn't a lot of exposure or understanding of, of everything. And um, so as I went to college, um, I remember my at orientation, I was like, I am like, I mean, it was a rural college, so it's not, you know, in the middle of a city or anything like that. But I was like, this is so foreign to me. I, I really want to, you know, just keep an open mind and, and kind of go from there. But I think that it really was studying abroad. I studied in York, England, and I studied at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, um, where I had to start answering like what it was to be an American, what it was to be, and um, sort of why my perspectives were were the way it was, why my speech was the way I was, you know, all these different things that I kind of took for granted. Um, and so developing from that to, I had a lot of international friends at the time, um, and sort of developing from there, I went into AmeriCorps where, you know, I started working around uh, recruitment. Um, and then um, at the University of Vermont, I just happened to have some amazing people um, around me that allowed me to ask questions, allowed me to, you know, burden them to a certain degree with, you know, helping me come to terms with, you know, kind of where I was, what I was doing at the time. Um, and I came to um, sort of understand um, from like an ACPA conference and other things, the concepts of ally development and sort of why is it important for, for me as a white, cis, heterosexual um, person, why is it important for me to get involved in all these different things? And so from there, um, I got very heavily, like my thesis was on ally development um, and kind of developed from there. Um, when I went to the University of I mean, Niagara University, I wasn't quite sure as a new professional where all that fit in. Um, so for the first few years, I was kind of hesitant as to, you know, how much, what, what do I do? Um, but I had the opportunity to um, go for my PhD at the University of Buffalo. And a lot of that was Dr. Rochelle Pope. I mean, her work around multicultural student affairs with John Mueller and Amy Reynolds um, has been great for student affairs and you know sort of in general and so it was an opportunity for me to be able to engage in a subject that i was interested in i happened to have her as an advisor as my dissertation advisor and you know kind of work from there but um i think in many ways for that i was engaging it academically but not necessarily on my campus as much because i was you know super busy with trying to do both of the things at the same time um, but some of our students got challenged um, on different issues, and I became good friends with, with some of the students that that were working on some of these issues, and it helped to push me back into, you know, rather than just learning academically, starting to, you know, sort of walk the walk that I, you know, I was, you know, sort of understanding but not necessarily engaging with. Um, so I had the opportunity to sort of be on the ground floor as some of our diversity organizations sort of developed as they avert evolved into different organizations um, as we dealt with issues on a campus, um, as we dealt with issues across the globe that have been in country that have influenced us. 
Um, and so those students really have pushed me to become a better advocate, to um, become a better ally, um, and to realize that, you know, I need to take that next step, not just, you know, multicultural competence, which is awareness, knowledge, and skills, but taking that next step with the praxis of reflective action um, and trying to, you know, kind of go from there. So I, I've tried to be as present as possible in, in those locations, um, have open conversations and, and kind of leave, you know, saying back to the beginning of trying to leave an open mind and, and work through the mistakes. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect and I can make mistakes in those areas. So the important thing is to listen and learn and kind of take a step back if I need to. Yeah. So I'm guessing it was probably as a result of, or as a continuation of those interests and education and opportunities and relationships. But can you talk a little bit about the case study uh, that you wrote for the second edition of Multicultural Competence and Student Affairs? How did that come about? What was that like? What did you learn from it? Yeah, that was that was kind of fun. I Working full-time and going to a PhD program, I didn't have a lot of time to get involved in sort of the writing aspect of everything. And um, so it, it was a challenge for me when I was doing all the types of things that I was doing, but my focus was on faculty multicultural competence and practices. Um, and so from there, you know, I was engaged with Dr. Pope and, and all the different people that were involved in these um, projects across student affairs. Um, so what I did was kind of take that lens and start applying it to advising. So I looked at faculty uh, advising, I looked at, you know, sort of how technology sort of merges into, um, you know, our professional development. So the Twitter chats and the other things, I started to understand that those kind of fit together in, in a ways that can help us become better professionals. Um, so my work with Western Eric Advising, a couple other places, um, you know, kind of helped me to develop these presentations. And so as um, they were developing the presentations, um, they realized that I'm one of the few people that was kind of working around merging multicultural competence and technology. Um, so um, John Mueller and I had some great conversations about the technology chapter in that book. Um, and then they asked if I would write sort of a case study to think about what are the implications of advising and technology? And I used an advisor in that, that case study, um, but essentially it was um, sort of developing a scenario to kind of make you think. Um, so I took a look at early alert programs and how they, um, you know, technology is sometimes built without the idea of an advisor or an advisee in mind. Um, so all the different defaults in the system that might give you a retention score or something like that may be biased because they don't take into effect into consideration, um, you know, different cultural issues or other types of things. And they can put information into these systems that then becomes visible to other people. Um, and so, you know, I looked at scenarios where um, information about identity or information about things that could potentially be racially insensitive could be added to these systems and how that could then be perpetuated in a way that would make students want to potentially leave the institution. Um, and so we kind of played around with that idea, refined it a little bit, and that's sort of the, the study that, well, not the study, but the um, example in, in the book to sort of help you think about those issues. Right. Yeah, we, um, I know there are some folks who fully um, understand the implications there and, uh, and I think, you know, as we consider advising practice um, and the disruptions the pandemic has created, um, the facilitation of education and those interactions uh, through technology and telemediated um, solutions um, have significant um, implications for advising practice. So um, for those of you whose uh, ears were um, peaked by uh, the, that conversation, definitely check out the second edition of Multicultural Competence Student Affairs for that case study. Um, you know, it, you were talking about the blend uh, of technology and um, and social justice and uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. 
Uh, I'm curious, where did the technology interest for you develop uh, personally or as an advising professional? I mean, I've always been interested in technology ever since I first had it, like Apple II GS <laughs> back in the day. Um, you know, I was, uh, I think in college, I, I reprogrammed a Maelstrom game to, you know, from like a, so that it had Star Wars, you know, sounds and, and, you know, little ships that I design and kind of re, re, redid that. Um, but I've always kind of been interested in, um, technology and how it can be used for different things. Um, so obviously, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that technology has evolved significantly <laughs> in that time. Um, so I remember it being college the first time I ever saw email. Um, but the, I've just always kind of been intrigued by how you can use it for, for different things. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, sometimes we get caught up in thinking of technology as just certain things that you use, like a certain system or a certain other thing. But um, what I hope that people kind of take out of this, and I know Sarah, Howard, and I have, I've talked about this in the past, is um, think about technology as a system, as a way of using the things around you. And so you start thinking about technology as a way of interacting as a system rather than like individual you know, programs and other things like that. Um, and that way you're not, you know, in trouble if one of those systems goes under um, or something happens. Um, so you don't put all your eggs in one social media basket and suddenly that basket doesn't exist. You kind of, you know, start to think about how do we engage across different platforms and other things like that. Um, and so for me, um, you know, I use technology, you know, in my early roles in AmeriCorps to sort of connect the swing dancing community, to connect the different AmeriCorps vistas across the main campus compact system. Um, I used technology in um, my roles here to sort of develop GPA calculators and other things that didn't exist before I sort of put them all together. Um, so like there's those smaller type of things that you can use, but you can also use it to you know, employ like our Western New York Advising Conference the last two years and, and probably this upcoming year on February 15th, we're going to try to do another virtual conference. Um, and so all of that is within like a technology system. And I'm the one that sort of, you know, coordinates the the website. So um, it, it allows us to reach many more advisors than just our region, which is a really kind of beneficial option to be able to sort of get technology and, and I was thinking about it for presentation we're going to be doing at, at Nakata 22 um, is, you know, how do we use technology to sort of get to those more intermediate and advanced levels of practice? So we think about, you know, how we use technology to engage social justice and advising, like beyond just what we have to do every day. So how do we improve? How do we get to that next level? Um, and then, you know, once you've started to improve on, on your own personal sort of engagement with it, how do you sort of take it to that advanced level where you start to like influence your sphere of influence around you, help to advance institutional policies that are more, you know, beneficial, think about strategic thinking and, you know, all those different things that kind of come into it at, at other levels. Sometimes we're limited, you know, based on our roles of, of certain areas, but it's, it's useful to kind of think about how we can use technology to sort of take it to the next level. Um, and I think that, that that piece, that that ability to use technology in different and innovative ways has always been what what's grounded me with, you know, kind of continuing and learning and, and developing those skills. Yeah, I imagine, uh, I, well, I can speak for myself anyway, that I know that there are times when I felt like if I had the space, time, energy, attention to devote to um, the other thing, um, then I could do that other things. So, uh, it could strategically influence the advising conversation on my campus or more broadly or um, participate more actively in the generation of scholarship um, or um, lead or volunteer or whatever the other thing you want to do is. Um, certainly uh, in the power dynamics and the struggle for time and energy and attention, technology presents some solutions. Um, and the 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 thing that we want to be careful with is not to become so dependent on it that we lose track of the very concerns that the sort of social justice DEI perspective you mentioned earlier is that we just use it because it's available. 
Um, and I'm curious, it, would you consider the um, Nakata technology and advising community like your first professional community? Or was there another group that you connected with first that sort of brought you to um, Nakata on a, a larger level? I mean, I think, you know, for me, um, I joined Nakata back in like the early 2000s. So I went to one of the conferences down in Florida, but it was more of an observer, like first time kind of, you know, going to a session, picking up information. And I didn't necessarily get engaged in sort of the, you know, the backside of it, which really has been great for me professionally since then. Um, but then being in um, a PhD program, I, my time was so limited that I kind of put that on the back burner. So I would, you know, kind of read the journal, check out the things that were going on. I was a member for a number of years. Um, but it was right when I ended my PhD program that I got involved in Nakata. So I went and did a pre-con workshop at um, Region 3. Um, and that was kind of the first sort of gateway to, to a lot of things. And then I've been presenting almost every, um, almost every, um, annual since then. And what was nice about it was it wasn't necessarily the first community. I mean, Western New York advising, I started and, you know, I was going to back in the two, early 2000s. I, you know, got involved in that in 2007. We presented on technology several times there before I got back involved with Nakata. So it was something that I was already engaged in. Um, I remember we hosted a technology and social media um, conference on our campus. Um, I did it for like $30 in the summer. Um, and we had 80 advisors from the region kind of come. And part of that, I ended up, you know, posting it on Twitter when I was first engaging with Twitter. Um, and Laura Paschini mentioned, oh, there's one at my alma mater, like how did, you know, what's going on? And so we got into conversations. Um, that was also when I was getting involved in for, for the first time in the academic advising chat. And so I was developing all these connections. And so when I went to, you know, Minnesota and, and got involved in there, Laura helped me sort of take that next step in getting involved in not only the advising community, but also um, getting on the um, as one of the steering committee members. And from there, it sort of built into, you know, helping support Sarah um, and um, then sort of taking over that role uh, for a while and now, you know, supporting uh, Diana, who's the current chair. Um, so it, it's been definitely a, um, a great place to be, but I think that having that Twitter connection, being able to go to a conference and suddenly say, hey, who's up for dinner tonight on Twitter makes those connections so much easier and, and helps you have like a very engaging conference experience that you might not otherwise get. Um, so I do encourage anyone that's going to Nakata this year to check out Nakata 22, um, the hashtag and, and, you know, kind of engage with the different people that there. It's not everyone's on it, but the people there are, you know, have become great friends over the years. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are going to be some folks for whom the um, hashtag world and the social media world isn't their most comfortable space, but um, I can say whether you're engaging virtually to connect in person or connecting personally to form uh, relationships that you'll connect virtually, um, doing more than the minimum um, at conferences, um, it has been, I think, the big shift for me as well. I benefited so much um, from uh, going to presentations. My first annual conference was in 2003 in Dallas, which isn't far from Lubbock where I am. Um, but it was still a, a far, it was a big leap from my concept of an advisor for six months to an annual conference of um, thousands of people. Um, but it took me a while to realize that I think the real benefit um, are the communities that you form, um, not just the knowledge that you gain um, or the places you get to visit as well. I'm really excited about Portland and um, the things that will be happening there. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, some of the, I don't, know, I don't want to consider them divergent or atypical or whatever. Uh, but, you know, there's this very standard talk um, about technology and advising and diversity, equity, inclusion, higher education, social justice, and very important things. Uh, but they, they sound at times like things that 
everyone's talking about. And sometimes the most interesting conversations are around the things that nobody seems to be talking about. Um, one of the things you mentioned uh, in your introduction and one of the things that we share in common is our interest in art, although I do not share your skill. Um, talk a little bit about urban sketching and creativity, your art efforts, the things that you've done um, from that perspective. And especially, I'm curious what you think about uh, how it influences your approach to advising. I think, you know, much like, you know, sort of the work with Nakata kind of got pushed off for a number of years. Like I, I got, I did a lot in high school and then kind of got out of the habit of, of doing art all the time. Um, and then in 2016, 2017, I started, you know, to draw more. Um, and my daughter and I uh, participated in uh, Inktober where like every day in Inktober, there's a different prompt and you can kind of draw with pen and ink, things like that. And I noticed that I got better over that time. Um, and so it really kind of spurred me to kind of get involved. And then from there, I, I, I discovered kind of urban sketching. Um, so essentially urban sketching is drawing on location, um, but to share the story of what's going around you. So taking like, you know, often an urban sketch, urban setting, but, you know, reportage or, um, you know, plain air to a certain degree, but it's a little more formal. Um, but essentially, it's drawing on location to tell the story of what's going around you. So it doesn't necessarily have to have every single tool in the studio. You kind of use what's around you to sort of, you know, capture what's going on. So you have people that focus a little bit more on the people around them, but in context. Um, so it's important to sort of think of urban sketching as not just you know drawing on location but showing the context of what's going on around you and being in community with others so a big portion of urban sketching is um sort of thinking about um you know how you're sharing with other people around you so getting to know the people that you're sketching with having sketch meets where you can kind of go out and all draw different perspectives of but in the same area together and then all get put together at the end to do like a throwdown um, or you take a picture of all the things and if people can kind of get together and, and kind of share that experience um, that's been great uh, it's definitely been a challenge with um, you know COVID um, so Dana um, and I who was the person that coordinates the Buffalo chapter of Urban Sketchers. Um, she and I um, sort of went online and did things through um, Zoom. So we had a whole bunch of artists that would get together every two weeks. Um, we One week we would talk shop and then the next week we would, you know, pick a virtual location and we'd all sketch those and, you know, kind of come up with different things. So um, that's been a really nice community to get involved in. I now teach it here on campus and kind of get our students interested in it. Um, but as far as like advising goes, being able to um, urban sketch and think about the community of urban sketchers has helped me kind of think about how do we really sit and observe what's going on around us. When I'm sketching, I can be very, very hyper-focused, but I also remember what's going on around me better than when I'm just doing something else. Um, so, you know, you can get like a very hyper-focused sort of, you know, um, ability to, you know, kind of observe the world and see what's going on. And I think as advisors, we have to kind of sometimes take time back from our schedules to really kind of focus on like, why are we doing this? What are we doing, you know, in these situations? Is what we're doing helping the students? Are there things that that we can do differently? Um, to think creatively and innovation. I know you and I have sort of shared that in some of our presentations together on the topic, but, um, you know, creativity and art go very hand in hand and there's lots of different ways to be creative. Um, but how do we be creative professionally and with advising? Like sometimes, um, you know, decisions are made uh, based on like pre-existing systems um, or, you know, you need to show, you know, how this is working or other things. And sometimes we're all ways we're thinking about where we want to go but sometimes we get lost in the weeds between that creative part of you know why don't we try out the system why don't we see if this has an impact um rather than you know just go with whatever someone else is doing and and assume that that's the best track so sometimes that that creativity helps us to be able to do that but also you know that community piece of 
urban sketchers where you can all get together and sort of you may have very beginners next to very advanced sketchers but you're all there to just sort of capture the scene and and spend time and enjoy time together and i think sometimes that's an important perspective to have with your students like it, it's important to you know sort of not just give them information or have them you know kind of make decisions or you know whatever you know sort of framework you're using for advisement but to sort of think about how do we make this a more communal space where where people can engage with each other and and kind of make it better because it's not a one-way street we're not just here to advise students these students influence how we advise yeah i was uh it's hard for me not to draw connections um mentally or thematically um but the being physically present in the space uh, that is part of the urban sketch dynamic but also in the just general creative process um the relationship to the media um you know the the rest of what's happening uh is almost uh, sometimes I guess the output, the result is often what people pay most attention to. Um, but the process, um, the, the discipline, I guess, if you want to call it that, or the, the habits or the, the practice of um, observation, um, uh, interpretation, uh, sort of the gesturing toward restating, um, you know, whatever, whatever the creative process looks like in the final outcome is almost... Um, not what people are uh, t paying attention to, but probably the, the most important thing is the process, the experience of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the things that the general idea um, that we have both shared about an art exhibition or some sort of um, artistic expression opportunity um, at an annual conference, um, we both had um, a hand in that developing in Portland in, um, in just a few weeks. I keep freaking out a little bit about that. Um, at the time of this recording, I'm not sure when this podcast comes out, but, uh, but at the time of this recording, we've got a few weeks before the annual conference and the first ever art exhibition. Um, can you share with uh, the listeners, you know, your, um, your role in that developing a little bit about where things were and what ultimately um, slowed things down uh, and just talk about your interest in an art exhibition at the annual conference? Yeah, I think I think it was the 2016 annual conference where a lot of this started. Um, and basically, we went to the conference and got to know each other and, and do different things. And I think from there, the idea of like essay pro art is sort of a hashtag. There's a Facebook group um, sort of developed in the sense that many of us in higher education and student affairs and advising uh, were doing different types of creative art um, and so we were starting to bond over you know different types of things whether it was Sarah Maddox doing you know the the knitting or um, Mia Held doing sort of the improv and theater or um, you know different types of of art many of us were we're doing these pieces. There was, you know, photography from Tom uh, Dixon or, or Sarah Ackerson and whole, all these different types of art were kind of coming together. Lenore um, had the pottery and, and um, all these different types of um, things that we were happening were kind of separate. So we kind of created this group um, from there um, and then sort of said, hey, would you like to do a presentation? So I know you know, you were part of that ground floor presentation, but we've done several since then. I've done some at other institutions and, you know, Western York Advising, we've um, done variations of that. So some of them have been focused on like the creativity and innovation piece and, and art and how we engage it as an advising. Some of them have, like have been hands-on. Um, so we did that in Kentucky. Um, so, you know, we've sort of developed from, from there. Um, as part of that, we've developed all these connections with different artists and who are also advisors. And so we kind of got together and we're like, hey, we might want to do something. Wouldn't it be cool if we did like sort of an art exhibit? And so we had the idea to sort of merge that into Puerto Rico. Um, and so we were in conversations with the executive office to, you know, sort of develop that. Um, and sort of they decided to, you know, just time wise to, to sort of develop it into a presentation. So we we did 
put one together that was going to be like urban sketching on the spot in Puerto Rico um, because, you know, it was just hard to get that off the ground in the amount of time that we had. Uh, but then with Puerto Rico sort of getting canceled and, and kind of going online, um, it didn't quite, we did do it online. So there is a, a version of that that is online where we talk about that with, um, you know, Joel and, and Rochelle. Um, but if it just wasn't something that we could could quite get there and with all the cancellations and other things, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, so I was very excited when you kind of picked up the pieces of that and, and sort of started running with it now. And I was happy to, you know, kind of hand over kind of some of the, the initial work that we'd done around that. Um, and I'm kind of excited to see all the different things that, that you've developed as far as um, pulling that together. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. I know the well-being group has sort of centered their um, their social around it, so they're going to meet up there and then go elsewhere from there. So there's lots of kind of fun things developing from it. Um, I, I still got to go finish some of my art pieces, so um, that'll that's going to be a challenge for me in the next little bit. But um, I'm I'm very excited to sort of see this implementation. Well, I know that the um, what might feel like a mad dash to the actual annual conference is not something that is limited to the artists, um, that there are presenters and volunteers and leaders and everybody who's making sure that there will be as ready as possible um, for the, the conference in Portland. Um, and I, you know, as I mentioned in the many proposals and meetings and conversations about the idea of an art exhibition, um, that almost everything Almost everything that we have as a professional community around these events known as conferences started with somebody say, wouldn't it be cool if, and that includes the very first ever annual conference that happened for academic advising in the United States. Um, practitioners, uh, creators, um, scholars saying, hey, what about this? Wouldn't that be something? Um, and it certainly is going to be something. So I appreciate uh, everyone who's been a part of it, especially you, John. Um, as we come close to the end of our time together, uh, there's a few things, uh, not just um, the communities that we've been a part of or our longevity that we have in common. Uh, and one of them is we both live with other advising professionals. Um, we uh, go to work and we do advising and advising related things. And then we go home and there's an advisor there. And uh, I'm curious what your experience has been like that, what that's been like. Um, I know for, for me, my spouse, um, she didn't start out in academic advising, um, but uh, we have had folks over at the busiest times of the year uh, when uh, they feel like they're watching a tennis match and that uh, she and I are just having a conversation about advising things and they have nothing to contribute. They're just watching us go back and forth. I'm curious what it's like living with an advisor. Um. It's been good. I mean, uh, my spouse was a teacher for a while, and um, Amanda did, um, you know, work, became a social worker. So she had a background in um, sort of things that are related to advisement and, and, you know, different types of things. And, you know, as she was sort of bouncing around to lots of, you know, different positions and other things, she realized how much I really loved my job of working with students, working with advising. Um, so she ended up, um, like her sister before her, going to, um, you know, higher education. So, you know, my sister-in-law also works in higher education. And, you know, I have other family that work in higher education as faculty members too. So um, it, it's been a nice um, opportunity to sort of work and, and think together. I mean, definitely during COVID, it was a challenge when we're both on the computer talking with students on different rooms and, you know, trying to juggle all the different things that kind of go into there. That that was definitely a challenge. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's nice to be able to, you know, sort of think through things in different ways um, and get a different perspective, not necessarily on, you know, specifics, but in, you know, how might you approach, you know, certain circumstances or other things like that. And so, you know, having that ability to, you know, kind of engage and think through things on, on different levels has been really good. Um, it's also been great to be able to, you know, it's a built-in network where, you know, we're at two different schools. We got lots of connections to different people. Um, and so, you know, it's been nice to sort of see um, 
you know, sort of the growth of advising in the region, like with Western Europe advising and other things, we, you know, interact with different circles, but at the same time, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and it's helped us to sort of, um, you know, think through the challenging pieces. Um, so sometimes we don't want to necessarily, you know, bring home stuff, but at the other times, sometimes we need, need a friendly ear. Um, and that's always, always appreciative. Yeah, we found the the familiarity, um, you know, like many things in life have its benefits and its its detriments. But um, while uh, we don't do the exact same thing, uh, we do some things that are so closely related or so similar, or we know so many folks in common um, that I guess eventually getting to understanding um, or getting to what the desired outcome is, is a, there's there are different um, but maybe fewer barriers to that. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the other things is, you know, you can always just say, well, you know what I'm talking about. And they can be like, sure, I know what, I'm talking, I know what you're talking about. Um, I, I'm, it's, it'd be, um, I guess, remiss of me to not mention um, the sort of inclusion in or the openness uh, in sharing um, sort of your pop culture um, uh, favorites and fandoms and connections is something that we have in common as well. Um, you mentioned um, altering a game, so it'd be a Star Wars game, uh, and you've got some figures behind you. Um, there's a lot of people who have thoughts about personal expression and uh, transparency and relational skills and that kind of stuff in advising. Um, and that's sort of the side that I see it is just being openly me. Um, how would you describe uh, your sort of pop culture expression and how it's uh, affected you as a professional? I mean, for a while there, I mean, I have a lot of different fandoms and other things that I go, but, you know, Star Wars is, you know, sort of center to that, but, you know, I, I love them all. I'm not, you know, limited to just one. Um, but I think that what it does is it helps to um, set people at ease um, and give you things that you can talk about with people. So, for instance, like I'm, you know, wearing a, a Darth Vader tie with a, you know, a tie clip here. Um, so if, um, you know, I'm going to an event and other things and, you know, students and families will comment on, on like, oh, I love your tie or, you know, other things like that. And it sort of breaks the ice and really um, can help you to engage students that, that are doing different things. I mean, over the years, my um, I've sort of dwindled some of my other things and sort of focused a little bit more on Star Wars with my, my office. So most of the stuff here is, you know, Star Wars related, but um, I think that properties which um, people are very passionate about can sometimes give you a nice way to sort of engage in conversations. I mean, there are also a lot of lessons, you know, if you think, I mean, obviously you've, you've done <laughs> presentations around uh, those types of topics, but um, there are ways in which, you know, sort of fandoms and thinking about characters and other things can help us to sort of think through things. So as professionals, you know, we can help to, you know, use those examples that people are familiar with to be able to share resources and share ideas. Um, there are, you know, sort of, you know, issues within, you know, toxicity within fandoms and other things that help us to better understand our field and how we can avoid, you know, some of those things within advising. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm there for whatever they want to put out. I mean, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm, I'm just excited to see the, the, you know, universes expanding. Um, and I think that, you know, to a certain degree, it's the same with students. Like, you know, there are struggles that students have, but I'm really excited to sort of see where they take it, um, how they, you know, adapt to those challenges, how they, you know, kind of go on from there and what they kind of do with their lives, other things like that. So it's been great to sort of get to know some of our alumni and sort of see where, where they're going with, with things um, and writing that next chapter. Because if we get stuck in sort of, you know, the, that toxic mindset of like, this is the only way it can be, um, you know, then, you know, we don't necessarily grow and adapt. And I think that that's like a nice thing about all these new things coming out within, um, you know, sort of Star Wars and other things is there's always something that can kind of challenge you in new directions. And there's ways to sort of see positive ways forward, um, which I think is, is important. Yeah, a long time ago, somebody asked me um, what my favorite Star Wars movie was. And my answer was the next one. 
I'm always interested to see what's next. And I'm also really excited for Andor. So I got my little Andor droid right here on my desk. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast, John. And, you know, the thing that I'm most excited for is the next conversation, uh, the next opportunity to gather and to meet and to share ideas and to connect. Um, and, uh, and so thank you so much uh, for the time that you took, for the perspectives you offered, for joining us on the podcast. And uh, I can't wait to see you again. Uh, everyone else who's listening in, um, I'm sure there's more to listen to. So make sure that you're reaching out and connecting with uh, your profession and, and your colleagues and the folks around you in the many ways that you can, um, whether it's through the real personal challenges and struggles of being human on this planet, um, whether it's the profession of academic advising and the work that we're doing or the, the ideas that we're trying to bring into it, um, or just the fun uh, stuff of being people who uh, share so much in common. Um, thanks so much for listening to uh, this interview and uh, check out some more, I'm sure, is what I'm in- encouraged to say. So thanks for that. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks. May the force be with you. Yeah, you too. Ryan, thank you as always for agreeing to be on the podcast and guest hosting your interview with John. John, lots of great information to share. And John, thank you so much for always being such a great supporter of the podcast over the years. And can it be? We have yet again reached the end of another episode of the Adventures and Advising podcast. Well done, everyone. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Join us next time for episode 70, which we will have a panel style episode. And also a big announcement. Keep advising. Oh,